This episode of The Cutting Room was made possible because of companies like AJA. AJA produces great I.O. products as well as cameras. You can learn more about AJA and everything they do at AJA.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This episode, I interview Derek McCants, who's been editing for over 30 years in L.A., Toronto, and New York. He's worked in documentaries, reality shows, as well as docudramas, and has worked on such projects as Beyond Scared Straight, The Real Housewives of Orange County, DEA, and Big Brother. Today, we're going to discuss working in the reality realm, as well as documentaries. Of course, if you want to add to the show, you can always email us at info at AOTG.com or get us on Twitter at AOTG Network. But in the meantime, here's my interview with Derek McCants. So I guess, can you start by telling me, how did you get into film editing? Just to be specific, Mm -hmm. I don't really edit film. I edit for television, and that started in videotape and now is file-based. I came out of college uh, hoping to be a writer. I majored in creative writing, and there wasn't much money in that. So I um, returned to New York from college. A friend of mine was working in video art with very early versions of Uh, video recorders and cameras. He asked me to assist him in writing some grants, which I did, and um, actually successfully obtained a NEA grant, which funded the what we call the live injection point that created video art. In the early days of video art, uh, we had a studio in Lower Manhattan on Franklin Street at the Franklin Street Arts Center. And then being around the equipment, and of course always having been interested in art, but being around the equipment, I learned more and more about it, wrote myself a grant, and was able to study with the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences as what they called a professional intern, which provided me with a stipend, um, which was enough to live on while I studied for, I believe it was eight months, eight or nine months. So what art did you, like video art, did you do? Like what kind of, what were you involved? Because you're the second editor I've met who's Mm -hmm. done video art, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to me. So I guess what was your involvement in that? What who influenced you in in video art? At the Franklin Street Art Center, we worked with uh, Willoughby Sharp, Mm -hmm. an early pioneer in video art and performance art, and Keith Saunier. We did a coast-to-coast interactive piece, which was the first public use of a satellite. And I forget the name of that piece, but it was in the old uh, Battery Park City, which is now high-end condos, but at that time was basically a beach. Uh, we, we, um, the name of our company or our arts group, the Franklin Street Arts Center was because we had a building on Franklin Street and in the basement was our studio and we were able to tap directly into the cable system. And that tap was called a live injection point. So how did you get from the art world into editing? The tech crew from uh, Franklin Street Art Center and the live injection point found paying jobs <laughs> at a place called Video Fashion. Video fashion taped fashion shows around the world and um, was the first publisher of what they called a video magazine, which was at that time a magazine distributed on three quarter inch cassette. So there was a little more professional equipment there and and I learned to use that. Uh, Again, it was three quarter inch. And because our programming had to be converted into international standards for world distribution, I got 
very familiar, or they got familiar with me, at a place called Devlin Productions. They had a process through which they could convert from one international standard to another. Uh, they called it the D-Scan. And uh, eventually they hired me as an editor. So what was, what was your first job as an editor? <laughs> I worked in what we called the edit booth. It was a very small room, hardly room for the client and myself. <laughs> uh, and we did uh, test commercials, low-budget music videos, that sort of thing. And so getting into documentary, because uh, you've cut a lot of documentary and reality television, and one of the things that's difficult, I guess you could say, from a documentary standpoint, is you're given large amounts of footage that you have to sort of wade through and tackle. So when you're starting a project and you're given 100 hours or 200 hours or however many hundreds of hours now with video, what's your process for starting? And how do you chop through that footage to find the story? Usually I'm given some sort of rough version of what the producer or director hopes the story is. They've been involved in the production so and in probably pre-production, and so they have an idea of where they want it to go when shooting. However, when you look at the footage, the footage can often tell a different story. So for me, I try to look at as much of the footage as I can. Sometimes I'm given what's called a string out or a long rough cut. Mm -hmm. I'll look at that, certainly. But I think that always brings me back to thinking of what else might be there. So mm -hmm. I do try to go back to the raw footage. Schedules don't often allow you to look at all of the footage, but I do try to. Uh, and from that point, it's a collaboration. I try to, of course, present my own version of what I think the story is. Uh, I think that's why they hire me, because hopefully I bring something to the project. But I like to work as a team. I accept input. Sometimes we discuss. I'd never consider it an argument. Hopefully, my partner in the collaboration is willing to accept my input. So. Just whenever I cut, the one thing I love to do is sort of toss everything on the timeline and slowly start wading through it. And that's sort of how I find the story when it's something like a documentary where there's no structure. So how do you, is that something similar where you're putting everything on the timeline and chopping it down? Or is it sit with the director and structure it from the start? Most often I'm left alone to work. Whether I make a long version of the cut that I think includes all the possibilities, or a shorter version is dependent on the schedule. Very often, the schedule dictates that you work quickly, and so there isn't often time to think and consider all of the possibilities. Mm -hmm. You have to make decisions pretty quickly. In these situations where it's like, you know, I'm used to doing it the way I was saying, where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm gonna take my time and find the story. That's the ideal situation. Um, and then, you know, I'll get thrown into these situations where it's like, oh, what you usually would have had a month to do, you have two weeks or whatever mm -hmm. the schedule difference is. So do you have any tips or techniques or approaches that you use to speed up your, your process or help you get through the footage faster? Or is there anything you could enlighten me with? Oh, <laughs> I would just say go with your gut. Sometimes you're reluctant to. You really do want to take your time and consider all the possibilities, all the choices. But when the schedule is short, you have to go with your gut. And hopefully through your years of experience, your gut is usually right. So when you're given footage from like a, a fiction television show, you have a structure that's built in, you have within that some form of pacing or timing that's already there, mm -hmm. right? Because the actors sort of dictate their timing, the, the way it's shot, everything's very controlled around that. And in documentary or reality, you don't necessarily have that pre-created sense of pacing. So what do you look for in the footage to help you guide or build or structure the timing of, 
of a scene or a moment. I don't know that it's always in the in the footage that tells you how to pace it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is, but it's also what do you want to get across at that point in the story? Mm -hmm. So I think the storytelling dictates the pacing. So like what's coming from the director type thing or the because if it's not coming from the footage, you're having to structure it story-wise, right? right? Okay. Um, I don't know that that always comes from the director. I think you have to look at what's best for the story at that point. So getting into reality, what would you say is the difference between documentary and reality from an editing standpoint? Well, for one thing, documentaries are usually issue-based. But reality is very often most often, a construct of the producers. So in that case, it may not matter what's in the footage. It's more the story that the producer wants to tell. In that case, you might be working with a story producer. So how do you work with the story producer to get through the footage fast? Because even like documentaries, schedules are tight, but in reality, it's even tighter. Mm -hmm. So what's your relationship with the story producer? How do you approach that? Uh, most often now, the story producer provides me with what we call a string out. Mm -hmm. It's a very rough version, uh, no effects, no music, that it usually is scene by scene and too long. <laughs> so because of schedule, it's often left to me to just shorten it, polish it, add the music and effects, and format it properly for the show. In reality, it's a lot comes from the characters, from the set. So what do you look for in the footage for, for those characters? Or what do you, you know, like I think of the Sarah Palin story, or, mm -hmm. you know, that juxtaposed to something like Scared Straight is crazy. Like, mm -hmm. you're looking for drastically different elements. So what do you look for in your footage? Well, again, sometimes it's a construct of the producer mm -hmm. and not really what that person is like. Uh, very often in reality shows, people are characterized to fit into a simple version of storytelling. And so you want to keep each cast member in the character that we may have created. In its worst version, we use Frankenbites. I don't like to do that. Many editors don't. In which you create phrases or sentences that fit the character that, that has been created. And very often it's in the reaction shots of that character or other people in the scene. It's interesting because Scared Straight, I always just, there's so many moments in that of the kids being badgerified. <laughs> I guess to start off with, with in regards to Scared Straight, what was the footage like from the prisons coming in? Because I feel like part of me wants to think that, yeah, a lot of this is manipulated, but it also feels like it's real... Like, I want to feel it's manipulated because it's like you're scaring these kids. <laughs> well, what was different about that footage is that it was the loudest footage I've probably ever worked with. Oh, really? But Scared Straight was one of the better shows, may have been the best uh, that I've worked on, in that there was no manipulation of the footage. That was really what went on. Mm -hmm. So in that, because it's a weird situation where you have kids who are being scared. So did you feel like you had to pull back at all or anything? Were these like <laughs> massive guys with tattoos on their arms? <laughs> um, no, and I, I try not to ever pull yeah. back. One of the things I noticed too is in, when I was looking through your resume, you gave me, you also worked a lot on first seasons and mm -hmm. first episodes. And especially with like docudramas and what have you, it's really important 
especially from the first show, but also the first season, to find the structure and find the overall feel for the show. So I'm wondering how you work with the producers to get that that feel or that approach to a show. Uh, first of all, I really enjoy working on first season and yeah. putting an imprint on a show that hopefully goes to a second and more mm-hmm. seasons. But finding what the show is in that first episode of a series is, again, a collaboration. It's you, the producer at the production company, mm-hmm. and the network. Mm-hmm. What I think happens is the production company has sold the network a show or the idea of a show and then they go out and shoot it and sometimes the network thinks that what what they see in a rough cut is not exactly what they expected to see and so you get a lot of feedback from the network when you cut a, a first episode it's also about molding it because you're setting the the pattern or the structure for the yeah. entire series i could see them being nervous or wanting to try something or yeah experimenting so i feel like there's a lot of back and forth between all the parties to find the best solution there is i think also it's really the second episode that sets the template because in the first episode you are introducing the premise and the cast Mm -hmm. so it's not really representative of the following episodes so what is it about because you said you really enjoyed first seasons Mm -hmm. so what is it about the first seasons that you enjoy i think it's a little more creative in that You are setting the tone, the look, the way the stories are told. When I say that it's really the second episode, I think there is a lot of storytelling in the first episode, of Mm -hmm. course. I was watching a a series on Netflix that they just Mm -hmm. did, and the first episode was really weird to me. And it wasn't until I saw the second episode that I realized, oh, it's because they're introducing us to all the characters. So they spent 45 minutes doing that, giving us background. And then the second episode is really impactful because Mm -hmm. this person has an issue or this, you know, and it... So it's one of those odd things, because my big worry if I was editing the first show would be, can we keep their their attention and get them into the next episode? Mm-hmm. So do you lay little, or how do you approach, I guess, inserting little bits that will... Well, there is, first of all, the super tease, yeah. um, which is that <laughs> yeah. long tease at the beginning of the show that tells you what's to come for the, mm-hmm. for the season. Uh, at the end of the show, there's also a tease about the next episode. But as you introduce each character, hopefully you are also presenting what the stakes are for that character. Now, because you mentioned earlier that you wanted to be a writer or mm-hmm. a storyteller. So how do you think your knowledge of writing and, and storytelling, how has that affected you in, in editing? And how has editing changed your perspective of writing? Well, I don't write very much now. Uh, I have contributed to some books on editing, but uh, I don't write the poetry and prose that I used to write. I think, though, that my interest in writing drew me to editing rather than another production skill, for example, like yeah. camera work, is because, as is often said, editing is the last rewrite. I have about two more questions. Mm-hmm. One of them is you've worked in Canada and the US. Mm-hmm. What are some of the differences you've seen between the two countries in the post process? Hmm. Um, the first thing I noticed arriving in Toronto was uh, that there is a respect for quality of life. So, whereas in Los Angeles, everyone works long hours and it's <laughs> rush, 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 there's a little more respect for your personal life here in Canada. I think Toronto has a huge number of talented people working in television. It's, there's a reason it's the one of the top three markets. So I have a great respect for 
editors in Toronto. And you, I guess you don't have to drive as far because in LA it's like... <laughs> well, the commute in Toronto <laughs> does not compare. <laughs> so that was my interview with Derek. Of course, if you have anything to say about editing reality or documentary projects, you can always email us at info at AOTG.com. You can always get us on Twitter at AOTG Network. Or, of course, you can get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. I'd like to thank Derek McCants for allowing me to interview him. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.